Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Your typical U.S. voter, whether they're Republican or Democrat, is living in two separate realities. This is Isaac Soule, a journalist who has been trying to counter the problems of partisan news in the U.S. After working for a number of mainstream media companies, he found that people's faith in his work was based on who published it rather than the content. I know that that sounds hyperbolic, especially maybe to people who aren't living in America right now. But literally, I, I don't mean that in a hyperbolic way at all. I'm not trying to be dramatic. They are actually living in two different realities. They believe something as simple as like the coronavirus response is you know, extremely well handled and everything's under control and all the numbers are a hoax on one side and is the worst pandemic that's ever hit the US and everything is totally out of control and the numbers are probably not as bad as we think they are on the other side. And that's really bad for the country. It's really bad for America. We are now four weeks out from the US election. And whilst Donald Trump has agreed to facilitate the transition process, he is still yet to concede. There has been growing pressure from conservatives signalling that it is time for Trump to give up. This includes serving senators and governors and close trusted allies. Yet Trump himself continues to cast doubt on the outcome. He has only made a few public appearances since election night. However, he has used these appearances to assert that he won the election. The campaign, which I won, by the way, but, you know, we'll find that out. Uh, Almost 74 million votes. Trump continues to tweet daily about the election, making various accusations of fraud and publicly criticising those who disagree with his position. Even in his tweet, acknowledging that they will begin the process of transitioning power, Trump declared that he will continue to fight the election result. He followed this by declaring he is working hard to clean up the stench of the 2020 election hoax. But, despite Trump and his allies filing dozens of lawsuits across numerous states, almost all have been dropped or dismissed. And these lawsuits have also been widely criticised. Judge Matthew J. Brown, a Republican presiding over the case in Pennsylvania, where Trump's legal team sought to block certification, stated that Trump's team had employed strained legal arguments without merit. He added, in the United States of America, this cannot justify the disenfranchisement of a single voter, let alone all the voters of its six most populated state. This was preceded by a wild press conference held at the RNC headquarters in Washington, where various unsubstantiated accusations were made. What we are really dealing with here and uncovering more by the day is the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here in the United States. Sidney Powell, 
who has been subsequently sidelined by the Trump campaign, made a number of accusations regarding election interference and the Dominion voting systems. In the 90-minute press conference, Trump's senior legal advisor, Jenna Ellis, insinuated that the Constitution allowed for the Electoral College votes to be changed to circumvent alleged fraudulent behaviour. Even Fox host Tucker Carlson was critical of the press conference, claiming the wilder accusations lacked any evidential support. And despite the removal of Sidney Powell from Trump's official legal team, other members of Trump's campaign continued to put pressure on the GOP to contest the election on his behalf. This includes those who are still to run in the contested Senate seats in Georgia. These continued accusations regarding the election is leading to many of Trump's supporters still believing this election was not fair or free, with Stop the Steal rallies held across the country. Isaac identified how this doubt in the election process now has serious consequences. One of the dynamics that I don't think people are discussing enough or understanding enough right now is that uh, I, I think in many ways Trump has sort of lost control of his supporters, if you want to talk about it that way. I think it's a bit of a runaway train. I do not think that if the president were in a best case scenario to come out today and say, we've pursued every legal action possible. We couldn't produce evidence of voter fraud. I'm conceding the election. Congratulations, Joe Biden. I think if he did that, there would still be 15% of the country give or take, firmly rooted in this belief that somehow somebody got to Trump and flipped him and some sort of pressure is forcing him to do this. And it was the deep state and that, you know, they saw the proof for themselves and they don't need the president to tell them whether the election was legitimate or not. And I think those people are going to not trust the process for the for the rest of time. These alternate realities has other damaging repercussions outside of the election. The politicisation of issues regarding the pandemic has real consequences. Partisan division has distorted the discussion regarding COVID-19, especially the interpretation of the science. As a result, binary arguments have led to more people dying than should have and broad damage to the economy, where more reasoned debate could have limited both. My name is Peter McCormack, and this is Alternate Realities, part four of Chaos, a podcast series for Defiance. I remember there was the first corona patients, and then there was the first fear that this might be corona. And for me, I think that was back in February, I had a woman who came back from the Caribbean with a, a respiratory illness. And uh, we had no means of testing at that point. And so, uh, she was, you know, put in isolation. Um, you know, in hindsight, now it didn't seem, it didn't appear to be COVID. Uh, it turned out to be something else. But that was our first fear, you know, and it took forever to get tested. For took forever for the results to get back, and then this poor woman was just basically sitting in isolation until we knew more. This is Mark. He's a doctor at a busy community hospital in Minnesota, twenty minutes outside of Minneapolis. The hospital serves a largely older, blue-collar community. It has around 400 beds, and you would go there for anything from a broken arm to a heart attack. But lately Mark's job has been focused mainly on treating COVID-19 patients. 
In the spring, the hospital experienced only a trickle of patients, while larger areas of Minneapolis were seeing a surge. As a result, they were able to efficiently prepare for the virus. A section of the hospital was set aside for treating patients and there was good access to PPE for staff. For treatment at this stage, support was given locally by infectious disease experts who were liaising with national and international organisations, all trying to understand what they were dealing with. But they too fully acknowledged the ambiguity um, of what we were doing uh, and the unclear science that we had uh, at the beginning um, straight away. So it's like, this is the best we've got. You know, it, that was very much uh, the sentiment. You know, we were flying by the seat of our pants here and, and we will figure it out though. During the first wave, Mark would experience patients rapidly crashing on arrival and having to be admitted into intensive care. The second wave of infections has been hit in more rural parts of the country, but there is a much improved understanding of the disease and how to treat it. However, there has been a huge quantity of patients arriving and the hospital is at capacity, causing significant operational problems. Mark and his colleagues have therefore had to consider measures to deal with any further increases in patients, such as cancelling scheduled surgery and opening up other areas of the hospital for COVID patients, such as the emergency room. With the medications and the treatments that we've had, the earlier identification, the more rapid testing, um, I'm not seeing people um, become as severely ill as acutely as I had done, as we had seen earlier uh, this spring. Um, but it's just the sheer quantity. Uh, you know, I was working some night shifts this past couple of weeks and just one after the other, COVID, 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 uh, would come in through the door. And uh, again, the severity is not too bad, but when I'm dealing with these patients now, it's more of this smoldering uh, level of disease where they're just not getting better over days and they remain on oxygen for three, four, five days. If you're older, uh, more sick to begin with, you're in the hospital for a week or more um, just on oxygen and we're monitoring you. There's no more treatment that we have. And so uh, as in the spring, these patients might have died. They might have been intubated for that duration of time. Now they're just kind of smoldering on uh, supplemental oxygen. Mark's story is typical of those working in hospitals across not only the US, but in other parts of the world which have seen a massive increase in infections. You can feel it amongst us all that there's a certain fatigue, um, maybe a certain degree of apathy. Uh, You know, and you have to constantly remind yourself going in every day to be vigilant with your PPE and, and know that while it's not routine to you anymore for this person coming in the door, it most certainly is. And there's nothing more uh, anxiety and fear provoking than being short of breath. And these people are just gasping for breath. But Mark and his colleagues' fears are giving way to exhaustion from the relentless routine of what they're having to deal with. And while these frontline medical staff are working day in, day out to help patients, they are doing so while there are huge disagreements regarding issues such as mask wearing, effective treatment, and the effectiveness of lockdowns. The mystery virus started here in the city of Wuhan, 
Chinese authorities pinpointing its source to this food market. Dozens have been infected, but experts... The coronavirus presented huge challenges for governments around the world. The last global pandemic which caused such a high number of deaths was the Spanish flu in 1918. Yet the world is now in a very different place. Huge improvements in medical and logistical expertise, as well as transnational cooperation, meant we were now theoretically better prepared to respond. However, globalization and the growth in air travel had meant that the virus now had the means to spread rapidly. Also, friction between governments following the global financial crisis had damaged many international alliances, complicating attempts to coordinate a global response. But perhaps the most damaging aspect of the response was the collective apathy, particularly in the West. Perhaps because previous influenza outbreaks such as SARS, H1N1 and MERS had been successfully contained. This virus is similar to the SARS virus which broke out in China in 2002, claiming the lives of nearly 800 people globally. While videos from China in mid-January showed overrun hospitals and people dropping dead on the street, the general public largely seemed to be indifferent, dismissing it as another false alarm. However, as the virus spread, various levels of panic set in, and the virus spread quickly. A patient was first identified with pneumonia-like symptoms in Wuhan at the beginning of December 2019, with China notifying the WHO in early January. Days later, Thailand, then Japan, reported their first cases, and the first deaths were being reported in China. By late January, while the virus was spreading throughout Asia, numerous Western countries started to report their first cases and travel restrictions began to be implemented. By the end of the first week in February, 25 countries had already reported cases, with the first deaths outside of China being reported. A rising level of concern was evident, as emergency hospitals were being constructed in record time in China. People started panic buying, hoarding food and medical supplies in preparation for the virus. Leaders of governments faced an evolving situation where the impact of the virus and the effectiveness of related measures to contain it was rapidly changing. There were a complex set of known and unknown issues to face in the understanding of the disease, its spread and treatment. At the same time, governments felt obliged to provide reassurance to the public despite the intense uncertainty. Politicians also had to grapple with how they should strategically deal with the impact of the pandemic. And the single key issue all governments faced was the trade-off between lockdowns to protect people's lives and limiting the economic impact to save people's livelihoods. An almost impossible problem to solve. The cold statistics clearly show that COVID is a danger to people's health, particularly the elderly and those with underlying health conditions. However, as most governments implemented some form of lockdown with varying financial support measures, the scale of the damage to the economy is becoming increasingly apparent while mortality rates are dropping as healthcare workers gain a better understanding of how to treat patients. For many, the damage is already done. Businesses that have taken generations to build may never recover. And over time, the wider societal impact is becoming apparent. From the damage to the economy, to a rise in mental health issues.
just a devastating indicator of how painful this pandemic has been for the U.S. economy. We just learned this morning U.S. economic growth shrank 32.9 percent in the second quarter. That is by far the largest quarterly drop since record keeping began. I am very concerned that we are going to lose as many as 20 to 30 percent of our small businesses. So the United Nations says that there's a high prevalence of mental distress worldwide because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, especially amongst healthcare workers. Public perception of COVID-19 has changed throughout the year, fed by news, rumor, and a growing weariness. This has manifested itself in public protests against restrictions, and governments have had to respond to these changing attitudes whilst also accounting for a growing understanding of the disease. As a result, flip-flopping in public policy has occurred in many nations, creating a lack of clarity as to the real objectives of various governments. Nowhere has this divided public opinion more than in the US. An increasingly hostile debate has focused on whether Trump has been sufficiently robust in his response to the pandemic. That debate has only intensified an already hostile political divide. Republicans have loyally rallied behind Trump's strategy, whilst the Democrats have provided a damning critique of his record. The division has led to a confused picture of the seriousness of the virus, where even mask wearing has become politicised. It doesn't matter who you voted for, whether you stood, who, where you stood before election day. It doesn't matter your party, your point of view. We can save tens of thousands of lives if everyone would just wear a mask. Do it for yourself. Do it for your neighbor. A mask is not a political statement, but it is a good way to start pulling the country together. Jonathan Haidt's 2012 book, The Righteous Mind, looked at the psychological reason behind political and religious divisions. The issue is that we can't fathom why those who disagree with us seemingly can't listen to reason. In the book, he identified that conservatives and liberals perceive specific issues through completely different lenses, presenting three core theories. Firstly, decision-making tends to be decided on gut instinct. We then post-rationalise these decisions to convince people we are right. Secondly, people's personalities make them predisposed to either liberal or conservative points of view. And thirdly, humans are mostly a selfish species, but behaviours that promote group cohesion have evolved to enable humans to succeed. Height's work should not make us assume that we are all genetically designed to follow one set of arguments over another like robots. However, it is important as it helps us understand why certain people are inclined to view the same issue from a different perspective. For example, the different appearance on the coronavirus lockdowns can now be viewed in a more rational way. People with a more liberal mindset will review this issue in the context of the values they hold regarding protecting individuals against harm from the virus, whereas conservative-minded people will be more focused on the impact of lockdowns in preserving liberty and the economy. When laying out both viewpoints, neither seems illogical or objectionable, but it is when people are forced into binary choices that arguments never settle as the parties are often arguing across purposes. Jay Van Bavel, an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University, 
has similarly looked at the division between conservatives and liberals and came to similar conclusions. In his talk, The Dangers of the Partisan Brain, he explained two reasons for the division. Firstly, the biology of liberals and conservatives is different in that they have different genetic foundations. And secondly, through evolution, we are designed to coordinate as groups. This is great for outcompeting other groups, but it leads to massive intergroup conflict and is a disaster for politics. The recent presidential elections laid bare the highly partisan political environment. Despite the range of issues which voters care about and the associated complexities, most recent elections have been focused on simple arguments around a few core issues. In 2016, it was the economy, immigration and Hillary Clinton's emails, while this most recent election has seen the pandemic as the central issue. Leading into this year, Donald Trump had good reason to be confident of a re-election. Despite a chaotic first term, marked by a special counsel investigation, impeachment trial and numerous other scandals, the Democrats had failed to land a lethal blow. But 2020 has been a year like no other. There are various ways that statistics can be used to compare nations, but it is an indisputable fact that the US has been the worst affected country in terms of the absolute numbers of infections and deaths. To date, there has been over 14 million recorded cases and over 275,000 people have died as a direct result of COVID-19, and the cases are continuing to rise. With new infections growing exponentially tonight, Americans should expect a lot more darkness ahead. As we come on the air, more than 2,000 Americans have been reported dead because of the virus. That is just in the past 24 hours. And the U.S. is now closing in on 200,000 new cases of the virus every day. There are urgent concerns tonight that the systems to both test and treat people are approaching a breaking point, pushing the mayors of several large cities, including L.A. and New York, to consider new restrictions to keep people home. Mirroring the response of many other countries, the United States experienced a wave of travel restrictions and lockdowns, and these measures immediately raised fears of an economic shock. Trump was wary of any responses inflicting long-lasting damage to the economy heading into 2020. The strength of the economy was perhaps his greatest achievement in office. He therefore focused on keeping the economy open, but has been criticised for not taking effective control in limiting the spread of the virus. For the second half of the year, he was condemned for ignoring the science. For a long time, he refused to wear a mask and continued to hold large rallies despite the rapid growth in infections. He levelled harsh criticism at those democratic states who sought to lock down their economies to control the spread of the virus. At the same time, he blamed them for the huge number of cases in the United States. What they want is a bailout of Democrat-run states that are doing poorly. And, you know, I don't think this is the right Why way to Why do you keep talking about Democrat sta states they and are. Democrat states? They're American states no, and American the Democrat-run states are the ones that are doing badly, George. If you look at New York, if you look at Illinois, if you look at a lot of different places, they're doing poorly. And cities, in particular cities. I mean, these cities are being run so poorly. But don't you have largely a responsibility because, for those largely states and cities as well? Dead, but largely because of the crime. 
they don't want to do anything about crime. Sanctuary cities, they have sanctuary cities where they're protecting criminals. They have things that the Republicans don't have. So they are. I mean, I don't want to say, look, I'm the president of everybody, but I don't want to say it. But they're Democrat-run cities. It is what it is. Biden's approach was the opposite, and the issue of masks became such a political hot potato that it was even discussed at the presidential election debates. I don't wear masks like him. Every time you see him, he's got a mask. He could be speaking 200 feet away from it. He shows up with the biggest mask I've ever seen. Well, masks, masks make a big difference. His own head of the CDC said if we just wore masks between now, if there, everybody wore masks in social distance between now and January, we'd probably save up to 100,000 lives. There is plenty of criticism that can also be pointed at the Democrats. Double standards were clearly apparent when sections of the liberal media, who had been openly condemning the risks posed by Trump's rallies, seemed to give a free pass to the huge celebrations when news networks called the election in Biden's favour. Also, Republican voters have valid concerns regarding the scale of restrictions that the Biden administration may be hoping to see implemented and the impact that these may have on the economy. South Dakota and Michigan have become microcosms for both the range of issues the United States is dealing with and the polarised views on how to manage the virus. Christy Nome is South Dakota's Republican governor. She has the typical credentials for a Republican. She became a small business owner after her father was killed in an accident. She left college to run and expand a family's hunting lodge and restaurant, and in later life she returned to college education to gain a degree in political science. She is unbashedly pro-Trump. When Trump visited Mount Rushmore for a rally in early August, Nome presented him with a four-foot replica of the monument that included a carving of his face. She also travelled extensively across battleground states supporting his presidential campaign. To protect business owners and children's educational needs, Nome hasn't issued a stay-at-home order during the pandemic. That's not to say they weren't effective, like the vast majority of states that have seen historic unemployment rates during the pandemic, South Dakota hit a record-breaking unemployment rate of 10.9% in April. However, by September, it had recovered to have the second lowest unemployment rate in the country, very similar to that experienced in September 2019 before the pandemic. The open for business attitude was best exemplified by the fact that South Dakota did not postpone hosting the Sturgis motorcycle rally. Held over 10 days in August, it is one of the world's largest biker rallies. The event this year was estimated to have attracted up to half a million visitors. It has resulted in $800 million in revenue in past years, and many businesses are dependent on the event. And in September, Nome publicized her state's strong economic recovery. We're taking the virus seriously, but we're also recognizing that there's consequences to what we've seen happen in other states, that shutting down businesses, uh, stopping a people's way of life has some devastating impacts on them and their ability to put food on the table for their families. So we've taken a very balanced approach in South Dakota. I know the media hates it. I know they're going to continue to come after mm -hmm. me and my decision making. They're going to continue to try to destroy South Dakota for what we have done and the path that we've taken. But I still believe uh, that in our state, it has worked out for our people and that they appreciate it. They appreciate the fact 
that I trusted them. And we have the strongest economy in the nation today. Our people are working, they're taking care of their families, and uh, they recognize that we've weathered this situation much better than the rest of the country. Since late September, cases in South Dakota have increased dramatically. In mid-September, there were between 200 and 400 new cases every day. By mid-October, this had risen to between 600 and 1,200 new daily cases. The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally is now considered a superspreader event and is being directly associated with the coronavirus outbreak throughout the Upper Midwest. Cases are rising exponentially throughout this part of the country, with the outbreak centered on the two Dakota states. Currently, in South Dakota, there have been 819 deaths, with half of those deaths having occurred in the last month. This past week, South Dakota has the highest death rate in the United States and one of the highest mortality rates in the world. The hospitalization rate is also the highest in America, with many now full. Despite this, Nome has held firm. There will be no lockdown or mandate for mask wearing. The media has portrayed this as a partisan issue, with Nome receiving intense criticism from mainstream media, particularly in relation to mask wearing. Whilst Fox News has robustly defended Norm's record, comparing the South Dakota economic resilience in comparison to the more challenging conditions in some democratic states. Matt, well those claims of this COVID explosion in South Dakota deserve a little fact checking, don't you think? Yesterday the state reported just 621 new cases and 7 deaths. And as to the idea that hospitals are being overwhelmed, well COVID patients only occupy 12.4% of South Dakota's hospital beds. But that doesn't even tell the whole story because those talking heads you just heard want South Dakota to fail because they didn't lock down in South Dakota. And what has that produced? Well, something people really love. It's called a job, an unemployment rate that is the second lowest in the country. Last week, Nome's office released a statement on how she would respond to Joe Biden asking her to mandate wearing a mask in South Dakota. It's a good day for freedom. Joe Biden realises that the president doesn't have the authority to institute a mask mandate. For that matter, neither does Governor Nome, which is why she has provided her citizens with the full scope of the science and trusted them to make the best decisions for themselves and their loved ones. On the same day, the Republican governor for North Dakota mandated mask wearing across the state, declaring that our situation has changed and we must change with it. Noam followed this with a press conference to respond to the mounting criticism. Some have said that my refusal to mandate masks is a reason why our cases are rising here in the state of South Dakota, and that is not true. Others have said that my refusal to advance harsh restrictions like lockdowns is another one of the reasons why our cases are rising, and that is also not true. There are 41 states that have some kind of a mask mandate. Cases are on the rise in 39 of those 41 states. In the neighboring Midwest state of Michigan, the response to COVID-19 has been very different. This is the Democratic governor of Michigan Gretchen Whitmer at a press conference just over two weeks ago. Now we have reached that point we were warning about. We are in the worst moment of this pandemic to date. The situation has never been more dire. We are at the precipice and we need to take some action. 
A leading model shows that if we don't take aggressive action right now, we could soon see 1,000 deaths per week here in Michigan. Governor Whitmer has instigated numerous restrictions since the pandemic took hold, with the aim of limiting the spread of the virus. From the middle of March, restrictions including closing schools and non-essential businesses were implemented. Towards the end of March, this was added to by a statewide stay-at-home order. These restrictions were extended and modified on three occasions, but were effectively in place until the end of May, though they have been invariably relaxed or tightened all the way through to October. Then, on November 15th, in response to the increase in cases in Michigan and the rest of the Upper Midwest, Whitmer announced a new set of restrictions that included the closure of various businesses for three weeks and in-person learning at schools and universities. Michigan was experiencing thousands of deaths and this was much higher than South Dakota, but it is a function of its larger population as close to 10 million people live in the state. It also suffered a more aggressive impact from the pandemic than South Dakota in the initial wave. While Michigan's caseload and death rate is high, over the past few weeks it has been lower than South Dakota. However, its state hospitals are 79% full, and if it were to track the trajectory of how the second wave hit South Dakota, Whitmer's fears of a thousand deaths per day could be realised. Due to the attempt to contain the virus, there has been a significant impact on the economy. Michigan had a record-breaking unemployment rate of 24% in April. While this decreased by September, it is still one of the highest rates of unemployment in the country. Michigan has also been the focus of numerous protests and incidents in response to these measures that have gained national attention. In mid-April, a convoy of thousands of motorists protested the extension of the stay-at-home order with Trump adding support by tweeting, Liberate Michigan. And at the end of April, armed protesters entered the Michigan Capitol building. In early May, a store security guard was killed in Flint following an argument with a customer about wearing a mask. And in the middle of May, there was a further armed protest outside the Michigan State Capitol. All of this led to the most serious escalation of events. Earlier today, Attorney General Dana Nessel was joined by officials from the Department of Justice and the FBI to announce state and federal charges against 13 members of two militia groups who were preparing to kidnap and possibly kill me. When I put my hand on the Bible and took the oath of office 22 months ago, I knew this job would be hard. But I'll be honest, I never could have imagined anything like this. In the end, members of the right-wing militia group called Wolverine Watchmen were charged in relation to a plot to kidnap Whitmer that was thwarted by the FBI. This last month, in response to new restrictions, armed members of a militia group called the Boogaloo Boys have been back on the streets to protest against Whitmer. What is concerning is that the politicisation of the pandemic, and in particular mask wearing, has filtered down to affect the behaviour of supporters. The Washington Post undertook an analysis that identified the frequency of mask wearing correlates with the political makeup of the state. 
and the issue of mask wearing has been contentious, not least due to changing information from the CDC and WHO, who originally recommended people did not wear masks. It is these shifting guidelines that have sowed confusion among the public about the utility of masks. Whilst most scientific evidence points to masks restricting the spread of the disease, there are some opposing opinions as to their effectiveness, and due to the politicisation of the topic, people tend to align with the evidence which sports their political leaning. Mask wearing has become a partisan choice, and referring back to Height's work, you can see why. For Democrats, their moral foundations lead to being pro-mask for the protection of others, whilst Republicans see a mandate of wearing a mask as infringing on personal liberty. In the midst of the unfolding crisis in South Dakota, some tweets from an emergency room from Sioux Falls in South Dakota went viral. On November the 15th, on a rare day off, Jodie Durring began tweeting whilst relaxing on her couch with her dog. She was conveying her personal difficulties of dealing with COVID on the front line. She didn't expect any significant feedback, but following the publicity her post received, she was being interviewed by CNN the following morning. The hardest thing to watch is that people are still looking for something else and they want a magic answer and they don't want to believe that COVID is real. And the reason I tweeted what I did is it wasn't one particular patient. It's just a culmination of so many people and their last dying words are, um, this can't be happening. It's not real. And when they should be spending time FaceTiming their families, they're filled with anger and hatred. And it just made me really sad the other night. And um, I just can't believe that those are going to be their last thoughts and words. Jodie Durring described the relentlessness of the ongoing misery as a movie where the credits never roll. Jodie's anger was clear when asked about Governor Nome's statement made at a Trump campaign rally that South Dakotans were happy because they were free. You know, I think it's frustrating as a healthcare provider because the last thing that we ask anyone when they seek care is how they voted or if they're a Democrat or Republican. The last thing we ever think about is that. What we think about is how can I help you? And so anybody that uses any chance to make this political um, makes any healthcare provider want to scream because at the end of the day, we just want to help. And if we don't get some help from the public as far as mask wearing and social distancing, um, you know, there's a, a, a thing on the internet right now that says, I'm not your first line of defense, I'm your last. And that actually is true in South Dakota, that by the time you get to me um, and the team that we work with, it might be too late. Mark has also experienced this denial of reality by patients being treated for COVID-19. You see people who are diagnosed with cancer deny that they have been or deny uh, that they're developing symptoms of it. You see that from time to time, but that's a denial of the fear of death. This is, I believe, the an identity by denying the virus, by choosing to not wear a mask, those are choices that you're making to reinforce your identity and your convictions. So it's not a rational decision per se to do so. And it's completely different than anything I've ever seen before in medicine. I've never had somebody come in and say, no, I don't have the flu. No, I don't have that infection in my leg. Um, so it, it is clearly unique to COVID-19. 
And yet, despite all the pressure, despite the continuing dark situations he is presented with on a continual basis, and despite the risks he is putting himself and his family through, Mark readily appreciates that this pandemic will have significant impacts on the wider community. Small businesses will suffer, which in turn will lead to significant downstream consequences in terms of mental health and other societal problems. But as with all those on the front line, his experience of these diseases are stark and visceral. I cannot deny the experiences that my patients are having. And it is most certainly worse than anything any physician has seen uh, in their careers. I asked Mark whether there was anything specifically the media was doing in framing the discussion of COVID-19 that was making the situation worse. Yeah, all of it. All of it. I, I have checked out of media for months now and uh, Twitter as well. Like it's, it's so ostracizing, it's so charged that I would not recommend anybody look to those outlets for the, their uh, information. Rather, start with your community. If you've got a, an expert you can reach out to, an expert, I mean, in, in epidemiology, public health, physician, etc., reach out to that person and have a candid conversation about your concerns uh, rather than trying to figure that out on, on Twitter. Because on the medical side, you'll have physicians spouting in all these research and technical data, which is not helpful for the individual person who's coming to the hospital and doesn't understand any of that. You know, that's, you know, ammo for having debates on Twitter. And then the media itself, like, uh, of course, that's not helpful. They're 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 gonna spin up everything they can to to get more clicks. And so I, I I think if we can refocus on our our communities and those contacts that we have with each other, who might be able to provide uh, more objective input while at the same time giving you the time to address your concerns, people will be a lot better off. The point is. Making a decision between saving lives and protecting the economy is a zero-sum game. Irrespective of how different governments have fared during the pandemic, it is impossible to make effective real-time decisions in the midst of a rapidly changing situation. That doesn't mean we can't debate the merits of different courses of action. It is obviously right to allow the small business owner to have an opinion on restrictions that may take their life's work. Equally giving voice to the health professionals on the consequences of infections is also vital. But presenting these complex issues as clear choices helps no one, nor does having people take firm positions aligning with political identity which exclude the validity of the opposing view. I'll give you one story that is, that it's a couple stories tied into one that, that has really impacted me. I've had a few Vietnam vets uh, who had COVID-19 and they broke down crying in front of me and they did so because they expressed to me that they were feeling the exact same denial of experience that they had dealt with upon returning from Vietnam. There is no evidence yet of an increased level of suicides in the United States during the pandemic, but the expectation is that continued restrictions 
lockdowns and the economic impact could trigger a wave of such deaths in the shadow of the pandemic. There are numerous anecdotes of large increases in calls to suicide helplines and in August the CDC released a report stating symptoms of anxiety disorder and depressive disorder increased considerably in the United States between April and June compared with the same period in 2019. During late June, 40% of US adults reported struggling with mental health and drug use, with one in four people between the ages of 18 and 24 stating that they had seriously considered suicide in the previous 30 days. The core dilemma regarding the impact of COVID-19 is the balance between implementing restrictions to limit infections whilst minimising damage to the economy and people's mental well-being. And the central truth regarding this dilemma is that both sides of the debate have credible arguments. But it is the politicisation of the debate that means people are not willing to give ground on their views or see merit in opposing views. We no longer seem to be able to give time and space to review someone else's beliefs and ideas from their standpoint. This is a criticism of people across the political spectrum. Jay Van Bavel, in his Dangers of the Partisan Mind TED Talk, set out what he thought was the antidote to the problem. Firstly, we all need to consider that we may be wrong. We need to be self-critical and check our own understanding of the issue at hand. Secondly, we need reliable, trustworthy sources of information where facts have been robustly checked. Thirdly, we need to open people's mind to enable meaningful dialogue to occur. This involves listening to others and affirming their common humanity. We need to learn how to connect again with each other. The problem is, we are now in the age where all forms of media seek to exploit our inclinations to view things from a liberal or conservative perspective. The media, rather than being a forum to help develop consensus, is driving a wedge between us. And in the next episode, we will look at the role the media plays in political division. This show was written and narrated by myself, Peter McCormack, with additional production and sound design by Danny Knowles. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the safest and best place to buy and sell Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google app stores. I am Peter McCormack. Head over to defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Also, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, please head over to our sister podcast, What Bitcoin Did.